When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome back to Latter Day Takes. Uh, today's episode is a little bit unique. It's just me. Uh, unadulterated, pure, raw. I don't know if those two things can go together. Harper. Unfiltered, right? Just the way we all like it. Anyway, um, today's episode is inspired by a conversation that I had with some friends this last weekend. I thought it was interesting, and so I would kind of wrote down some things, and I thought, you know what? It's might be good to get this out here. I, I Something I kind of want to do moving forward, maybe a little bit more, because I like sharing my ideas, and I would love feedback that I get from any of you, obviously, and I've been getting a lot of feedback from a lot of people, um, Some, most of which is very, very positive, which is great, and other which is just kind of constructive, maybe think about something differently or whatever else. And I always appreciate it regardless of how it comes, as long as it's, you know, motivated to be constructive, which I think is really important. So um, I would love feedback for this one as well. Um, Y'all have been fantastic. I hope this uh, this content resonates more than anything. Um, and I think you'll find some of it interesting. I talk about miracles and kind of, you know, perception of miracles is really kind of the bigger aspect of how miracles are defined right not necessarily of whether or not it is a miracle but how we look at miracles and how we look at phenomena that takes place and then from there i kind of break into some thoughts that i've had recently about how salt lake city has been prophesied to become one of the most evil cities in the last days and how it kind of makes sense especially when you go off the book of mormon as a blueprint to kind of define that for you anyway i break that all down in there and i hope that it makes sense and if not please definitely then tell me that it doesn't make sense and then I'll stop and I'll just revert back to kind of more of what I do, which, I mean, there will be regular guests and things like that. In fact, come, later this week, I'll be talking with Lisa Roger. I get to that at the very end of this episode. She's fantastic, a really good friend of mine. She's given me a lot of great feedback and I think it was high time that I had her on the podcast to talk about her own experiences in the church because she certainly has had a more unique one than my own. And I think that's important to highlight. So anyway... I'll do that later this week with her, and I um, hope everybody's great. hope you had a great weekend, and hope this week has started off to a real bang. It's Tuesday, so, you know, Tuesday doesn't really have a feel, as they say in Seinfeld. Newman and Kramer had that conversation. Tuesday really doesn't have a feel. Every other day has a feel. Tuesday doesn't. So go ahead and just make the most of this Tuesday for me, would you? Anyway, from there... Take it away, Joe Rogan. Mormons are my favorite. They're my favorite. Yeah, okay. They're absolutely yeah. my favorite. All Mormons are nutty Mormons. Mormons are the nicest cult of all time. Beautiful, and these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. <laughs> Everybody's so nice in Utah. Just being a Mormon's nutty. Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the Here. best cult. My favorite religion is Mormons. They're the nicest people. Shout out to the Latter-day Saint. So, um, this last weekend, I was talking with some friends, some that I actually didn't know too well, but the topic came up 
about how kind of prayers are answered. And that was because a friend of mine who listens to this podcast and many others, and some of them are church-related topics and things like that, had brought up the idea of another podcast. It was a story that somebody had shared. Now, I don't remember all the details of this story, so I don't want to totally do it a disservice just for the sake of making an argument against it. But the gist of it is essentially that this woman's experience was that she was going into the store and really needed a shopping cart but couldn't find one and had said a prayer in her heart to find a shopping cart. And lo and behold, in one aisle over, there was a shopping cart available and she felt like it was an answer to a prayer. Now, it very well could have been. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there is a certain perception here that exists with people that may not be members of our faith thinking that if we whatever we ask for we in the moment we may need it or it if we need it we'll get it and that's not always how it works a lot of times we're tested and we're tried in ways where we're asking for a specific blessing and we don't receive it and that's because God knows exactly what we really need in that moment. For example, if this lady wasn't able to find a cart, maybe what she could have realized is that she didn't actually need a cart and that she was able to fulfill just the necessities of what she needed in that day. And that could have been the miracle. So it got me thinking how, how dependent the idea of miracles are on our perception. You know, and what I mean by that is that what one person may call a miracle, another may call a natural phenomenon. What one may call good timing, another may call a miracle. What one may call a coincidence, another may call a miracle. It's my belief that miracles do in fact exist, but they exist only as much as we really want them to. They're not meant to falsely reaffirm our beliefs and lend credence to our faith but I think more so they're meant to be offered as gentle reminders that the mere witness of their existence is a manifestation of our relationship with our Holy Creator. Kind of a reminder that He still exists and He loves us. Because miracles, when you boil it down to just a matter of perception as opposed to really divine intervention, because God really is involved in our lives constantly, you know, when you think about how two people can witness the same phenomenon, one of the people may witness that and attribute it to nature, while the other may attribute it to divine intervention. The argument between those two people, those two witnesses, does not really revolve around whether or not it was actually a miracle. The argument is really around the emotional slash spiritual state of the witnesses. More often than not, our perception is contingent on our former beliefs, right? How we were raised the society that we're a part of, the ideologies that we've adopted into our lives or maybe have been pushed upon us in a sense. An atheist has no reason to believe that a coincidence is nothing more than just that, a coincidence, or maybe it's good luck or whatever you may want to call it. Whereas the faithful believer in a higher power may look to that as heavenly intervention. The natural fallout is then dependent on how we allow that experience to shape our future outlook. Right? How do we create a better relationship with our Heavenly Father? 
The believer in a higher power may then be more likely to witness future miracles, right? Because they're used to seeing them. They've kind of set up their life to be more available or more willing to witness these miracles. Whereas the atheist might just keep seeing coincidence and nothing more. And perhaps likely even less coincidences as time goes on. Especially with the idea that maybe science can explain everything anyway. Where else in this world do non-believers who see something that a believer would call a miracle but chalk it up to new technology or happenstance, luck, etc.? I actually think it happens very regularly today where something we might see and call a miracle. For example, the Nephites had their breastplates and their shields. They may call that a miracle when they're fighting in battle against the Lamanites, but not the fact that God told them to make those breastplates and shields in the first place. Maybe that's really where the miracle is. I think there's a strong possibility that some of the Nephites didn't even believe that what they had experienced was actually a miracle when they were wearing those breastplates, right? They were inspired to actually put on those breastplates to give them the advantage in those battles. Maybe it was more about, maybe they thought it was just better preparation and they had access to newer technology than the Lamanites did. But I believe God really can be in the details and really is for the most part. And herein lies potential danger for not giving all of that glory to God and that he actually does care how we view every occurrence in our life. Everything truly does happen for a reason. God just wants us to find the reason. And if we want to call it a miracle, we call it a miracle. This reminds me to give you kind of a couple references in the Book of Mormon in 4th Nephi chapter 1 verse 5. I had the thought come over me when reading this is, you know, why don't we see more of these miracles? Like from that, from that verse, which it references, raise the dead, cause the lame to walk, blind to receive their sight, deaf to hear. But what's fascinating is that we actually do today. We just call it science. We call it modern medicine. We don't really see or hear about that a whole lot, at least certainly not in the mainstream, uh, in the mainstream sense, you know, but we may refer to them as miracles in church or in our testimonies, which I truly believe they are. But we may start to minimize or diminish our perception of what these miracles really are, because that's exactly what's happening nowadays, according to that verse back and forth, Nephi. Raise the dead, cause the lame to walk, blind to receive their sight, deaf to hear. Literally, all those things have started happening it's another another thing that reminds me of this kind of idea this is an example from the scriptures comes from third nephi chapter 2 verse 1 and it says the people began to forgot or forget those signs and wonders to be less and less astonished at a sign or a wonder from heaven insomuch that they began to be hard in their hearts and blind in their minds and began to disbelieve all which they had heard and seen and I ask myself, is this something we're experiencing now? Are there so many miracles around us on a daily basis that we've stopped recognizing them? I think it's very possible. Are we not surprised anymore to see God's hand in our lives on a regular basis? You kind of see this at the end of Helaman as well. People rationalize miracles, signs, prophecies, etc. Samuel the Lamanite comes to the Nephites and he says, this is what's going to happen. 
when the Savior is born. It says one day and a night and a day, as if it were one day and there were no light, night. There were no night. Today, we might look at that and say, oh, you know, there's actual explanations for that because, you know, white nights happen in places like Alaska and Russia where it could be three in the morning and still perfectly bright outside. But back in the Book of Mormon, Samuel the Lamanite is talking about this as a sign coming from the heavens. Whereas today we'd say, oh, it's this weird natural phenomenon that take place that takes place once every however many hundreds or thousands of years but it's makes sense because you see it all the time happen in other parts of the world just not really in this part of the world and that's why it's so weird but it's not a sign and it's not a miracle i think there's kind of that growing sentiment we're starting to see and feel that more and more giving more credence to scientific explanation and chalking it up as a natural phenomenon as opposed to saying maybe God is actually telling us something or maybe he's revealing us something to us that's bigger. And I think a thought experiment that I like to throw out there is to kind of think maybe what the children of Israel had thought about manna. Is it possible to think that they may have collected manna without realizing the miracle that it truly was? I mean, they were literally surviving off of manna. Is it possible to think that that's the same way we look at something like, I don't know, water, perhaps? The miracle of water, after all, is just a matter of necessity to us. It's, it's a miracle until we have an abundance of it. And it's a miracle until... It, and it isn't a miracle until we need it. Maybe the children of Israel thought they were entitled to manna, just like maybe we feel like we're entitled to the many resources we have today. Which is another reason why daily thanks and gratitude is so imperative, not only for our relationship with Heavenly Father, but in strengthening our faith as well. Our faith that's going to allow us to witness and experience more miracles as our lives go on. Anyway, that was obviously a tangent. I hope at least it made some sense and it was something I wanted to share just kind of as a catalyst from that conversation that we were having the other day among friends. And with that, I actually wanted to talk about something else that I found of real interest, something that I've been thinking a lot about lately here and there, I guess, maybe not a lot, but it comes to mind often. Um, and it's, it's based on a vision or prophecy that President Heber C. Kimball had that he gave. Um, I'm not sure what the year was, but, but Heber C. Kimball was a first counselor in the very first presidency ever. He was first counselor to Brigham Young. And he had said that at some point in the last days, Salt Lake City will actually become one of the most wicked cities in the world. I think that's fascinating to think about, and I'll tell you why after I read his statement, which is his vision, or the statement of his prophecy goes like this. He says, After a while, the Gentiles will gather in Salt Lake City by the thousands, and this will be among the wicked cities in the world. Well, we're already seeing that, right? House, housing prices are sky high. A spirit of speculation and extravagance will take possession of the saints, and the results will be financial bondage. An army of elders will be sent to the four quarters of the earth to search out the righteous and warn the wicked of coming events. 
all kinds of religions will be started and miracles performed that will deceive the very elect if such a thing were possible. Persecution comes next and all Latter-day Saints will be tested to the limit. Many will apostatize and others will stand still not knowing what to do. The judgments of God will be poured out upon the wicked to the extent that our elders from far and near will be called home, or in other words, the gospel will be taken from the Gentiles and later on will be carried to the Jews. The western boundaries of the states of Missouri will be swept so clean of its inhabitants that, as President Young tells us, when we return to that place, there will not be as much as a yellow dog to wag his tail. Before that day comes, however, the saints will be put to the test that will try the very best of them. The pressure will become so great that the righteous among us will cry unto the Lord day and night until deliverance comes. Yes, we think we are secure here in the chambers of these everlasting hills where we can close the doors of the canyons against mobs and persecutors, the wicked and the vile, who have always beset us with violence and robbery. But I want to say to you, my brethren, that the time is coming when we will be mixed up in these now peaceful valleys to that extent that it will be difficult to tell the face of a saint from the face of an enemy against the people of God. That sounds like Twitter, if you ask me. Anyway, still a little bit more. He says, Then is the time to look out for the great sieve, for there will be a great shifting time, and many will fall. For I say unto you, there is a test, a test, a test coming. What I think is fascinating here, and that's the end of his vision. Where is prophecy? What I think is fascinating here is just the idea alone that Salt Lake City will become among the most wicked cities in the world. That is actually not hard to believe. And I'm not saying that because I see it now, right? I mean, I'm, I live in the Salt Lake City area. So I don't want to make it sound like just a type of bias that I'm here and I only see what I want to see and I see a bunch of terrible, evil people. There's a, a, amazing people out here. They're fantastic people. And I truly believe there always will be. And I think that'll be the difference between these last days and the last days of other dispensations is that you truly do have actually a lot of great people around still, people that want to do good, true followers of Christ. But I can believe it if you just apply what we see in the Book of Mormon repeatedly. And by that, I mean the relationship essentially between the Nephites and the Lamanites. And former Nephites. This was something that was pointed out to me from an old bishop when I lived in Lubbock, Texas. He's a great guy. I still have a good relationship with him. I haven't talked to him in a while. But he pointed out one time, he said, you know, it's interesting when you look at the Book of Mormon that pretty much all the major wars that we witness in the Book of Mormon were brought on by former Nephites that went and stirred up the Lamanites. And, you know, lo and behold, he's right. I don't think there are really, I mean, there may be an exception or two to that, but for the most part, the major wars that were started, especially the war that was started by Amalickiah, who was a former Nephite, and this is in the Book of Alma, starting around chapter, I don't know, I want to say 43, 44 maybe. It's the same war when Captain Moroni makes a real name for himself and becomes one of everybody's favorite figures from the Book of Mormon. But anyway, so... That one is probably the most memorable because it took the longest to go through, explain, and talk about all the dynamics of how it started and everything. Amalekiah being a Nephite, wanting a lot more power. Um, I think he essentially started the idea of being a kingman, which were like that idea and sentiment still prevailed 
in a political sense among the Nephites. And that's when Captain Ronan was like, now we got to do something about the King Man and the insurrection that we're seeing, all that stuff. Anyway, I think Amalekai was kind of part of the concoction of that whole idea. But what he ended up doing was he ended up leaving the Nephites because it just wasn't working there. And he goes and takes over. He gets he takes his army of dissenters and they all go over to the Lamanites and they make a deal with some Lamanite leaders and in the process are um, basically out. He's just out for number one. He ends up killing the king of the Lamanites and becomes the king of the Lamanites all in the span of like a year, essentially. I'm not positive on that timeline, but that sounds about right to me. Anyway, so that's just a great archetype kind of of the relationship between the Nephite and the Lamanites is that you essentially have three factions that exist in the Book of Mormon that you see a lot that revolve around how the wars started and how they kept going and how they became so vicious. And what you see is that you have Nephites, former Nephites, and Lamanites. And the former Nephites go up and stir up the Lamanites because they hate the Nephites so much. They hate what they left, and they, they just hate those, they hate their own brothers, essentially. And you see that also in one of the early battles as well between Captain Moroni and Zarahemna, and how the ferocity of those dissenters from the Nephites and how they fight because they fight with such a disdain and hate for their former brethren, the Nephites. Now, what I find fascinating here is that if the Nephites and the Lamanites didn't have any in-between, any former Nephites that were there to basically stir either side up, they probably could have coexisted for the most part. Is that they were kind of okay just being like, you know what, we hate each other, but we also don't really care to have these big wars and you know, kill each other off. Let's just like coexist, whatever. And let bygones be bygones. I think that same idea kind of exists now. Not to say that, well, I guess it is to say, I mean, what I think it's analogous to is you have the church in Salt Lake City. You have the non-members in Salt Lake City. Those are two major factions that have coexisted together for a long time. Now, not to say the relationship has always been awesome and just smooth. There's been some prickly times, sure. But for the most part, those two parties, those two major parties can coexist and get along pretty well. And there's a lot of mutual respect for either side. But what you have sometimes, and you seem to have a growing sentiment of this, is ex-Mormons, former members of the church, that leave they either get excommunicated or they just leave. They get their records removed. And they can't help themselves but keep talking about how terrible the church is and how terrible the church has been to them and perhaps how much the church hates non-members of the church. At least that's the narrative they try and push. You have these former members of the church that are going to stir up the non-members of the church and say, you know what, they actually are super judgmental. They have their own little... They have their own little uh, in-groups and their out-groups, and they hate you guys. They may not say they hate you guys. They have a great PR team, but deep down, they actually hate you all, and this is why. Because they are racist. They're misogynistic, or misogynist. They're racist. They're misogynist. They're homophobic. They're bigoted in all sorts of ways. Xenophobic, whatever. It's hard to keep up with all the phobics these days. 
And they use all those terms to go stir up non-members of the church who otherwise would have been fine just kind of living off in their own world. Don't bother me. We won't bother you. That's fine. Okay. But that doesn't happen these days. And I feel like we're seeing that growing sentiment. And with the growing popularity of Salt Lake City as a whole, right? I mean, the housing prices are through the roof. They're a real testament to how much Utah is growing. I mean, the census just came out not too long ago and how Utah was actually even the most growing state in the last decade, which should come as no surprise to any of us who live here. And you have a lot of non-members coming to the state. Nothing wrong with that on its face. In fact, nothing wrong with that really at all. But it does kind of take into perspective this whole prophecy from Heber C. Kimball that maybe it will actually become one of the most evil cities in the world near the end of the time end of the days because it's going to be huge it seems like it's only growing more i think things like the jazz being a lot more popular Dwayne wayne being involved with the operations maybe utah is going to be more of a destination city than just a you know a stepping stone that a lot of players have used in the past and that growing popularity the attraction to Utah, how great it can be in the winter, as well as the summers. You might have a lot of people actually just come into the state to live here, and it's going to grow. And as long as we have members of the church that leave, that hate the church, that then go try and stir up the non-members, it really could be an interesting fallout in that respect. You might see more people wanting to define themselves more by not being members of the church as opposed to just being who they are. And by that I mean they're trying so hard to disassociate their identity from that of the church that they're going to say, you know what, not only do I drink, but I do it in this way. Or not only do I not live the lifestyle of a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I live the anti-lifestyle of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Could happen. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. That's definitely not impossible. But I think there's a... It, it certainly puts into perspective Heber C. Kimball's prophecy and my fascination with it. And I think something that we want to adopt moving forward, how do we you know, combat this, so to speak? Now, I don't know if I like the word combative. Now, I understand that, like, sometimes, you know, you have to fight for what you believe in. But there can be some negative undertones there. I mean, the whole idea that once you start enjoying the fight more than what you're fighting for, then you've lost yourself, right? I've talked about that before, and that's something that I wanted to share again. Because I do think there is something important about how we carry ourselves as members of the church, right? We cannot just fight for the church just for the sake of fighting we can't enjoy the fight more than we love being members of the church and loving the gospel itself and how do we do that well i think there's really two criterion for that i think it's being zealous while also being loving zealous for our beliefs while also being loving towards others everything we have to do with others is with a foundation of love i know that may sound cheesy but it's required, it's necessary. And it won't be possible to have a leg to stand on if we forget how to do it in a loving way. Now, how is love defined in this context? That's the fascinating question, and that's something I wrote about not too long ago when it came to the rainbow lighting of the why. 
when there were all these accusations thrown at BYU saying, why can't you be more loving? Well, that's an interesting question. Loving according to who? Right? Loving according to those that are saying, why can't you be more loving? Well, what does love mean? Does love mean acceptance? Does that mean full-on acceptance and a complete abandonment of their own beliefs just so that they could be loving according to your terms? I don't think that's very fair. But I also think more than anything, we're arguing about the actual definition of love here. And that's what was important to define. So we can be loving. It may not come across as loving. I think you can make the argument, back to Captain Roni, that what he was doing when he was actually defending the church, defending the liberty, defending their freedom, defending their families, right? The title of liberty, all the tenets of the title of liberty. He was doing so with a foundation of love. And in fact, when he went back to the Nephite capital, Zarahemla, and he was there to fight off the king men, and he was saying, hey, you got to stop this nonsense or you're going to die because we cannot have this dissension, especially right now when we're in the midst of the most harsh battle we've ever been in. And there were some that refused, and so he had to kill them. And I think it's very possible that Moroni in that scenario was really had this internal battle with himself. I don't think he just looked at that scenario and said, oh, great, now I get to kill you, and that's awesome. No, I think that was something that he probably battled with emotionally quite a bit, and it was probably really hard for him to rationalize, or maybe rationalize isn't the right way of putting it, but really hard for him to compartmentalize and say, this, this needs to be done. I don't want to do it, but it needs to be done, because it's actually better that these men die right now than keep not only living in apostasy with themselves, but bringing down others into apostasy as well because they show no signs of correcting that. And so we have to put an end to that. And it's possible that Moroni, Captain Moroni, was doing so more from a foundation of love than it was that he just wanted to fight these men off. Who knows? Now, that's not my way of saying, now now let's go justify and, and love these people to death, right? Obviously, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that our love means that we can go then fight and be there, you know, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and just like go to town. We cannot lower ourselves to their level. I don't think, you know, it'll be required for us to actually get into any physical altercations. But to do so with love is to say, I love the gospel more than anything. And if that means defending it and making some harsh analogies perhaps to you, some of you dissenters comparing you to Antichrist in the Book of Mormon, then so be it. That doesn't necessarily mean we don't love you, but we are trying to point out just exactly how you're wrong. The problem is, is that seems to be lost on a lot of people, and especially now more than ever. Anyway, these are some of my thoughts from last week. This is probably something that I'll do a little bit more often, as long as the feedback is positive. Now, granted, I could get feedback from people and say, you know, I don't, uh, you know, maybe keep your thoughts to yourself. So, <laughs> If you like this podcast, please let me know. If you didn't like this, sorry, and when I mean podcast, I mean episode. If you didn't like this episode, also especially please let me know. So that way I can maybe pivot, do it with another approach, um, because it is meant to be relatable more than anything. What I want is for this to resonate with people. And um, so far I've had great feedback and you guys have all been so nice. Um, I haven't always had positive feedback, but that's okay. I'm putting myself out there. I'm putting myself and my content, my ideas, my thoughts out there. And when I do that, I understand 
that that means I am up for the most scrutiny possible. And there may be people that this does not resonate with, and if so, that's that's okay. It's not required that it resonates with them. It's not required that people accept this as any type of truth anyway. But I do hope it resonates. I hope it gives other people who have had a hard time articulating these concepts a little bit more fodder, gives some gives some ammunition to them to feel better about their own beliefs in the gospel. But like I said, if it doesn't resonate, please let me know. Because my only goal is that this helps people at the end of the day. Anyway, I hope you all are having a great start to your week. I hope you had a great last weekend. I sure did. That's where a lot of the conversations that, or I guess a lot of the content for this episode have taken place. It was from a conversation I had last weekend. Anyway, I love you all, and um, I hope this uh, I hope this resonates. Keep having a great week, and to kind of close out here, I do want to say that I'm going to have a good friend of mine on the podcast later this week. Her name is Lisa Roger, and what we're going to talk about is kind of her own experience as a member of the church. She went to BYU. She's a convert. She's also a black woman, and she has... A lot of different opinions than I do. In fact, we differ in a lot of ways. And I couldn't appreciate it more. And I've always enjoyed our conversations. And I really respect Lisa. And I think she's a great, great person. So I think it'll be interesting to see her perspective on a lot of these things. She actually gives me feedback quite a bit on my podcast. And I always, I always love it. She, she always, it, it always just makes me think differently, right? And, and, and our goals, our conversations aren't necessarily meant to change each other's opinions. But it's rather, hey, this is where I see it. Or this is how I see it and vice versa it's meant for more like hey maybe i won't convince you of my ways but at least maybe you could understand it a little bit more of where i'm coming from and yeah that makes perfect sense because we all we come from all different walks of life and thank goodness we all don't think alike right so anyway it'll be great to have lisa on i'm really looking forward to that and i think uh that'll be enjoyable for most if not all of you as well anyway once again have a great week and i will talk to you soon enough There's an hourglass sitting on my table I'm watching Cause everything's changing my mind Goes to a different time Old love, I remember falling so madly There must have been magic in the valley And a rhythm in the night Cause I could almost see it Did you fade right? takes time.